Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. We've published some great episodes in the month of December, including a rewatchables with Quentin Tarantino on Dunkirk. Sean Fennessy sat down with Greta Gerwig to talk about her new film, Little Women, on the big picture. And Adam Sandler and Kevin Garnett appeared on the Bill Simmons podcast to talk about their newest film, Uncut Gems. Happy New Year from The Ringer. David, at the Golden Globes on Sunday, host Ricky Gervais shames celebrities who dared to be political. What I want to know is, should celebrities <laughs> stick to acting? <laughs> it was the great like stick to sports moment of, of, of Hollywood, and yet like even the most like politically the people who are most politically aligned with the with you know Hollywood, I think we're probably pretty. Um, more aligned in that moment with Ricky Gervais, right? I mean, is anybody like just really eager to hear, uh, you know, Joaquin Phoenix say not to take private planes or Brad Pitt <laughs> him telling you to go do nice, do something nice for somebody if you get the opportunity? See, I think I want that to be like 20% of an award show. Like, I wouldn't want that to be the whole Oscars coming up, but I'd want some of that in the Oscars. Like, I don't, it doesn't have to be Joaquin Phoenix talking about private planes, but I guess just the idea of like, Maybe it's actually Ricky. Maybe it's like, I want host with an agenda. Yeah. Host with something to say, right? Mm-hmm. I think that the most, the most like, treacly, unlook-awayable part of any of any acceptance speech is when the actor tries to relate the role or the film into some sort of, like, larger moral. Uh, and in some ways, going political sort of absolves you of the of, of that like you don't you don't have to be you don't have to make that ridiculous sort of like correlation between your dumb acting job and like you know the the larger significance of it so i mean i i, I would sort of i would prefer that my actors be forced to make their own job seem more important than they are i mean and, and acting is important we, we i'm not trying to make light of it i love i love movies and television and everything else and and could never do what they do and love watching it but I would have much more rather heard Joaquin Phoenix explain why the Joker script meant so much to him and how it's you know going to affect good ch- you know change in the world on its own. Speaking on behalf of the think piece industry, <laughs> don't we need some political content from these award shows sure. to let everybody in on the act? Like National Review and the Washington Post editorial page cannot talk about Kate Blanchett's dress. That that's not going to get you an 800 word editorial. But you can talk about what Ricky said. You can talk about those nefarious liberal celebrities. That absolutely gets you to think peace nirvana. Yeah. So, you know, look, David, it's a tough time for the journalism industry. There's not a lot of jobs to be had out there. It's true. (laughs) Award ceremonies. Put us back to work, baby. That's why we need you. We are the Cable Ace Awards of Media Podcast. This is the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Media consumers, you've got Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer here. Lots to get to today. We'll talk about the obituaries for the late, great NBA commissioner, David Stern. We'll talk about the stories the media was dogpiling during the first weekend of the NFL playoffs. All of that, plus the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, I want to start with Iran, because last week when Donald Trump ordered the airstrike that killed Iranian spymaster Qasem Soleimani, 
There was an opening in the media for a voice that would sum up the growing anti-war sentiment in this country. On Friday, one such voice rose above the din. I bring you uh, Tucker Carlson. Our government exists to defend and promote the interests of American citizens, period. That's why we have a government. So has the killing of Soleimani done that? Maybe. No one in Washington has explained how. Instead, like Ben Sass, they're telling us what an awful person he was. He clearly was. So that's irrelevant. Meanwhile, it's pretty clear that things could start to move in the wrong direction pretty quickly. We're praying they don't, but they could. How do we know that? Because we've seen it before. We fought quite a number of wars around the Middle East in recent decades. We attacked Saddam Hussein twice, as you know. In the end, we killed him. We invaded and occupied Afghanistan. We toppled Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. We fought ISIS in Syria and then for some reason stuck around. We're still there. We joined humanitarian missions in Lebanon and Somalia. Our special forces have been quietly fighting in Yemen, Pakistan, Niger, who knows where else, many other places. In every single place, each of these conflicts has turned out to be longer and bloodier and more expensive than we were promised in the first place. The benefits, often they've been non-existent. A lot of lectures about how the people we're killing deserve to die. Certainly they did. Hope that makes you feel better. What do the American people think about all of this? Not that anyone cares. According to CNN, some of the chirons you can see on Carlson's show have included benefits of recent wars have been non-existent or how will a new conflict make us more secure? Meanwhile, over on Lou Dobbs's Fox Business show, you see the more conventionally foxy chiron Trump secures another Middle East victory. So what, David, should we make of Tucker's get us out of Iran rhetoric. It's interesting. I mean, I, I don't want to be too dismissive. Well, okay, I will be. I mean, I, it's hard to imagine Tucker. <laughs> Why not? It's, it, it's hard to imagine after the past several years of Tucker Carlson on Fox News that this is a purely principled stand. He must see some sort of, uh, you know, profitable wedge issue here. Um, but regardless, you know, it's it's... This isn't on a, you know in a, in a vacuum. This isn't some like shocking political stance. I mean, this is basically what Trump ran on, right? And mm-hmm. what partly yes. I mean, I mean, right. I mean, obviously, there's. I don't. I, don't, I mean, there there are there are many many shades depending on the the moment in conversation. You know, when you're talking about Trump's foreign policy rhetoric on the campaign trail, but I mean, this was a big. Uh, thing that that made him stand out from the rest of the pack in the primaries. I mean, this is this was the this was a cudgel he used against Jeb Bush. This is you know this is this is what he, uh, I mean, Middle Eastern conflict and and get and bringing our troops home was a huge issue for him. Now it also was for Obama, you know, and 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 he did. Um, yeah, I mean, you could see him straining to try to make you know functional governing sense of. Um, his own campaign rhetoric, right? As he did during his eight years in office as in terms of our role in the Middle East. But, you know, for Trump, this was, this was part of the, part of the kind of clarion call. I mean, this, this is what a lot of people who were otherwise, you know, apolitical or unaffiliated attached themselves to. Um, and if, if everyone is, I mean, and, and I guess, you know, you can look at, you can look at the, um, I guess assassination is the word, uh, and 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 say that it's not necessarily connected to. I mean, it will not necessarily precipitate war 
in a, with Iran, but it's an act of war. And I mean, for Trump, it's either an admission that he, you know he changed his mind, that he wasn't serious about it, that he doesn't know that that these you know he doesn't know the significance of what he did. I think for for Tucker Carlson though, it's interesting that he's kind of come out against it. It'll be interesting to see if he if how many people sort of sign on to his point of view, but politically, it's not a shocking turn of events. This is, you know, what you would expect Tucker Carlson to say if it were any other, you know, if it were a Democratic president. And I guess the interesting thing is that he's just sort of pushing against the Trump administration here. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things is one is if you listen to those segments, he's very reluctant to criticize Trump himself. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, you're, you've been surrounded, you ran on this, as you said a second ago, and now you've been surrounded by these kind of conventional Republican foreign policy hands who are pushing you toward confrontation. Don't let yourself mm-hmm. be pushed. And if you listen to Carlson and even that, that little bit we listened to there, it does sound like, doesn't it, that he's trying to use the president's favorite cable news channel to persuade the president. Like he is, he is saying, listen to me. I'm not just doing a cable news bit here, but I'm really trying to convince Trump that this is a bad idea, whether that's for moral reasons that Tucker Carlson believes, whether he thinks that's just a bad political idea for Trump and that Trump will get reelected more easily if he stays out of confrontations like this. Um, Max Taney of the Daily Beast noted in June that uh, Carlson was advising Trump against going to war in Iran, uh, sort of digging it against John Bolton and Mike Pompeo at that point. To your point about the consistency, that is a really fascinating question because Middle East wars is something that Trump was all over the place on in the campaign. You're right. He was definitely trying to project I'm going I'm not going there. I'm keeping us out. He used it not only as a cudgel against Republicans, but against Hillary Clinton in the general election, who, of course, voted for the Iraq war back in the day. Mm -hmm. The um, but he was also the guy saying he was going to uh, just obliterate ISIS and he was going to kill terrorist families and all those kinds of things. Um, One, I guess, attempt to kind of square the circle here is uh, Astead Herndon, the New York Times reporter. He tweeted this. All Fox hosts hype whatever Trump says isn't really true. Fox is more like a politically correct conductor between the base and the White House, and that includes an America-first ideological sector skeptical of intervention because they would rather wage cultural wars at home. Carlson fits here. It's interesting It's interesting in terms of him trying to counsel Trump. And you're right. I mean, I think that... that John Bolton, who has been in the news, obviously, the past couple of days uh, for slightly different reasons, because he's apparently making himself available if, in fact, he's subpoenaed to testify in the impeachment trial before the Senate. Um, you know, I mean, he he has a really interesting role in all this in that this, you know, this was sort of, you know, Iran was widely seen as his sort of particular um, fixation. Um, and, and I think, you know, partly that allowed you know, the, the politics of Mike Pompeo and, and, you know, even Mike Pence um, to sort of fly a little bit under the radar. Uh, the, the If indeed this is the people that are directly surrounding Trump that are, that are you know, pushing for this decision, um, you know, it's an interesting showdown, right? Between Tucker Carlson and Mike Pompeo or, you know, whoever else is, is, is helping Trump call the shots. It's a, um, I guess, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, 
I don't mean this is a joke. I mean, I'm kind of I'm kind of interested to see where Hannity comes down on this, right? I mean, he might he might cast the deciding vote. Um, mm-hmm. But also, I'm not quite sure how you get out of it because you know I mentioned this. I think the last time we talked about it, um, if there was any question as to whether or not there were politics involved, and there's always politics involved in this sort of decision making. But if there was ever any question about it, I mean, I feel like Trump sort of put those questions to bed when he just started tweeting rampantly about the connection, about how we can't, we have to abandon impeachment now that we have these international, you know, we have this issue with Iran going on. And that combined with just the general, I mean, just the state of affairs, I mean, after after we make that move, I'm not quite sure how we walk it back, right? And I don't know what Tucker Carlson can say, even if he convinces Trump. I mean, how do we, how do you, how does, I find it hard to imagine that whatever it would take to walk this back is something that Trump would be willing or capable of doing. Yeah, I guess there's probably some middle ground between high stakes confrontation with Iran and full on war with Iran. So maybe if you're Carlson, you're trying to drag Trump a little bit toward the former. I guess the other thing we got to consider here is what does Tucker Carlson want to do instead of going to war with Iran? Matt Gertz had a good piece in Media Matters, which I'll quote from Carlson has actually urged his audience to instead focus their attention on the invasion, quote unquote, across the southern border and undocumented immigrants living in this country. He had another uh, segment, I believe, on Monday where he has this, the whole thing called American dystopia. And he's talking about San Francisco, where he says, quote, civilization is coming apart. The sidewalks are littered with junkies and feces and dirty needles. So what Carlson is saying is, I don't want us over there because I'm now going to demagogue and vamp about how America's gotten so awful because of all these, uh, you know, things I'm going to demonize immigrants, the homeless, things like that. Uh, um, you know, Democrats who run cities like San Francisco, <laughs> sex crazed pandas. The uh, yeah, if, exactly. Right. And so, so is, is, the, the, if, is, is the zoom out? I mean, is the, is the argument that he's that if we concentrate on actual real world issues, then he will not be able to go back to his repertoire of material. I mean, that like it will it will it will throw into relief how ridiculous everything else he talks about is. Are we spending too much time on this? I mean, are we are we are we parsing something that really doesn't matter at the end of the day? I mean, I think the issue really matters. Uh, it's it's this is it. You know, Tucker Carlson makes it really hard, and I mean, it's really difficult Tucker Carlson to make a you know enemy of my enemy sort of line of argument. Even if you know if you agree with him, even if you agree with him, this rash that rationale is just so inane. It you know it it's hard to even give it too much credence. Um, it, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe we are, but it is. It, but but I think it is going to be interesting to watch how. Sort of anti-war, anti, um, you know, international police right um, responds to the situation that we're in because you know we're seeing a lot of sort of reactive, you know, support of the president, um, and I think I don't think we'd expect anything different, um, but it's, I mean, politically. I'm sure there's somebody in Trump's ear telling him that you know this this is this sort of thing could be a real like a a political winner. I'm not sure that I mean it feels like the last several elections have have shown us the exact opposite, right? I mean, and and I'm not sure. I, I don't know how many senators as much as they want to support the president are going to be eager to have this as the main discussion in any sort of re-election battle. Um, I guess we'll see. It, it'll be interesting to see how that 
how the Tucker Carlson wing sort of, uh, you know, takes shape. A <laughs> couple more media notes on Iran. One was Trump's own rhetoric, which has been filtered mostly through Twitter. There was a tweet on Saturday uh, where he said that if Iran strikes any Americans or American assets, we have targeted 52 Iranian sites representing the 52 hostages taken by Iran many years ago. Um, vowed to take aim at what he called the Iranian culture, sites important to the Iranian culture. Uh, then on Sunday, this immortal tweet, these media posts, and media posts was capitalized, will serve as notification to the United States Congress that should Iran strike any person or target, the United States will quickly and fully strike back and perhaps in a disproportionate manner. Such legal notice is not required, but is given nevertheless, exclamation point. So that is the president um, carefully weighing his words as we the, face these media posts tweet. The, 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 sorry, the these media posts tweet that you just read. I mean, I thought it was, if nothing else, interesting because it did seem to be sort of ghostwritten, but still sort of filtered through Trump speak. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting marriage, right? Like this is the formal thing we need to do. But we don't want we don't want to make we want to keep this in Trump's own voice. Yeah, there's a lot there's a lot of strenuous ghostwriting going on there. I mean, if you look at his Twitter feed now, there are some. I mean, honestly, I think over ten retweets of Lindsey Graham, who unsurprisingly is in support of this. Um, the there's a whole lot of retweeting of you know of you know political talking heads of of op ed writing of of just general support of the act the the assassination now you know i guess it it we should differentiate between you know between you know the, the that assassination and and what it means sort of as if if it means anything in terms of a march towards war but you know it, it the whole conversation just seems it just seems like everybody's arguing in different directions i mean you can certainly assert the president's authority to to you know make this decision that doesn't mean it was a good decision you know and 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 i and it just it i guess it's just again disappointing that we're you know people are deliberately you know politicizing this and just by missing the forest for the trees in a lot of this conversation um you know and and we we're going to talk on and on about it but there's also the the very significant issue of, of them claiming it was an issue of urgent national security when there's no proof of it. And that's an, that's an easy talking point, whether or not there is actual proof of it, you know, but but in reality. It's only after. It was only after the assassination that America that, that were urging Americans to leave Iraq because for their own safety. Right. I mean, like we're like it's it really feels like the Trump administration has created the um the the matter of national security that they were they were nominally trying to avoid. So I, I don't know. I mean, the, I don't even know how that re- relates directly to what to, to Trump's timeline. But he's I mean, Trump's Twitter timeline. But um, he see he is more active in defending himself on this front on Twitter than he's been about just about anything else. And and the chorus of voices that he's retweeting, um, maybe because it's the first time that he has just this chorus of voices that are like that are like loudly backing him up. But it does seem he's, you know, I don't know if it's protesting too much or just, you know, leading the amen circle or whatever. But he, but there's he's he's very active right now. Let's also spend one second talking about how this is filtered into the Democratic primary campaign. 
Reed, oh, yeah. Reed Epstein had a good piece in the New York Times about how Pete Buttigieg is leaning in to his military experience as a military intelligence officer on the ground in Afghanistan. He told an audience Friday at a community center in this snowy ski resort town, I was trained to ask these questions before a decision is made. So he's waving his hands saying, hey, 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 want somebody with military experience right here? That's I'm I'm that guy. Uh, Seth Moulton, who's a congressman from Massachusetts, uh, swiped back a little bit. He said there's only one candidate who has had to make life or death decisions involving American lives, and that's Vice President Biden. There's no combat veterans left in the race. I have tremendous respect for Pete's service as an analyst, but analysts don't make decisions. Moulton served in the Marine Corps. Uh, So that's where that comes from. I also found this fascinating uh, from Epstein's piece. If elected, Mr. Buttigieg would be the first Democratic president since Jimmy Carter to have served in the military. So I don't know how you see this playing. You know, I think all Democrats sort of got in front of a mic and gave versions of the same statement, which was this was not a good guy, but should we have done this? And that's most uh, mostly where they left it. And now Buddha judge is sort of coming in and saying, well, if you want somebody who can think about these issues, I have experience that none of my opponents have. And that's going to be the way he tries to kind of pounce on it. What do you think? Yeah, and I don't think dismissing his sir. I mean, I, I you know I, I understand like the political calculus behind the analysts don't make decisions sort of line of argument, but like I think that in so much as Biden has made you know life or death decisions involving American lives, um, and 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 so I mean and and Buddha Judge sir, I mean Buddha Judge service is a real thing. I think that what we look for is, I mean, I think what a lot of Democratic voters are looking look for is the is what candidate will i mean i think the, the appeal of buddha judge and the appeal of joe biden regardless of his experience is is that they claim to be able to view our men and women in uniform as human beings and not as part of a machine you know not mm-hmm. as part not not as not as like you know just the sort of cogs in a in a political or you know international relations uh you know machinery and and I, and and i think that you know i guess they have to argue over who is who has the the better ability to see that humanity um but it, it's not i i don't i don't think that like joe biden's actual experience uh in making these decisions is necessarily the what, what's going to like like bring people to the to the ballot box I can't I can't imagine that it's really going to be that big an issue. I think if anything, maybe it kind of rebounds to Biden in a way just because it it gets you to the kind of steady hand argument that he's been making very explicitly throughout the campaign. Like, oh, something's happening and we'd rather have Biden in charge of this rather than somebody who hasn't yeah. done it. But but even that's like, I think, a vague sense. I just don't. I honestly think Democratic voters, you look at those those lists, you know, they they care about health care. They care about other things. And I just don't know how big a priority this will be. And maybe all Democratic voters well, sort of think we're going to elect a Democrat and they're not going to do it. Right. They're going to try to reboot the Iran nuclear agreement or something. You know, they're well, not they're not going to be in this confrontation. 
I think in so much as it helps anybody, I mean, and, and you know, the, the little, you know, TV I've watched over the past couple of days sort of bears this out. It's, I mean, it's, 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 it may very well help Bernie Sanders, at least in the prime amongst primary voters. Right. I mean, because when this sort of thing happens, I think for a lot of voters, it's hard not to look at even eight years of the Obama administration and certainly Biden's, you know, career up to that point and say that, like, I don't think he, he might not have okayed that, you know, this specific action but like you know he did vote i mean he did cast votes to send us to to send our country into war and i'm not sure that his foreign policy overall would be i mean i'm not sure it'd be closer to trump than bernie sanders but it may be you know and and i think that's a i mean that's a real consideration especially for like i said the really motivated primary um voting bloc it's time now david for the overworld twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. David, who cares about Julian Castro? Because the real campaign shakeup story last week was candidate Marion Williamson firing her entire national staff and hinting she would replace it with, quote, volunteers. Uh, a lot of good stuff came out of that, but this one. I thought got it just right. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write. The downsized Williamson campaign is also known as Crystal Light. Crystal Light. <laughs> In Iran news, David, we had a funny situation last week where you look at the trending topics list on Twitter and you see the actual trending topic next to the one that's a paid ad. Well, after the Iran strike, there were back-to-back trending topics that said WW3 like World War Three, and then the hashtag, this is my WW, which means this is my Weight Watchers. <laughs> Twitter's algorithm getting confused by WW3 and WW Weight Watchers. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, for some people, Weight Watchers is their World War Three. thanks to <laughs> James. And finally, David, is it possible to self-overwork a Twitter joke? I oh, think, I don't know. Let's find out. I think maybe so, because there's a political commentator named Dave Rubin who's had this bit about the Middle East. He's been workshopping on Twitter since 2013. Here he is. This is September 2013. Obama at the U.N. quote, I ran to get here, but I'm not rushing to be put between Iraq and a hard place. To see all the all the puns. <laughs> he did it again in. March of 2015, John Kerry, quote, I ran to get here, but Israeli a mess. We're between a rock and a hard place. Again, in February 2016. And now Dave Rubin finally got to make the joke he's been waiting for. So he tweets this on January 3rd. I ran to get here, but we're between Iraq and a hard place. Israeli a mess. So let's talk Turkey. Not just grease the conversation. Syria, folks. This Kuwait, but don't Crimea River in a month from now. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. <laughs> that list of puns was so good that it was seven years in the making. You know, sometimes you make a joke on Twitter and then immediately you're hit with like the, the like that sinking feeling that you made the same joke last year. You know, the Super Bowl last year, you made the same Super Bowl commercial joke. Do we think this guy's and not you don't quite know, aware? And you don't want to yeah. look. Yeah. yeah. 
I was like, I know, I got this Iraq in a hard place joke, which, by the way, must be one of the great overused pun headlines of all time. I guarantee yeah. there's a 1991 version of Iraq in a hard place. Anyway, thanks to Bonnie Rachel. If you had Mideast punnage you love so much, you used it for seven years. Congrats, you made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. All right, David, in the notebook dump, I want to talk to you about the death of David Stern, who was NBA commissioner from 1984 to 2014. I read most of the obituaries, and you know what they reminded me of? They reminded me of the obituaries for John McCain. And let me tell you why. David Stern was a great NBA commissioner, no doubt about that. But he was also great at making the people who cover the NBA feel important, right? Uh. He was, like McCain, super available. Like McCain, he was absolutely ready to spar with reporters and argue for them, which makes reporters actually feel better than if he'd been an easy interview because they like to feel like they're challenging someone, right? They're doing their job and damn it, you know, I, I the bastard yelled at me, but he still returned my calls the next time. Mm-hmm. I feel these were the obituaries in a way that David Stern spent his career planning for. And I don't know if I've ever seen a public figure, maybe other than McCain, whose obits were more geared around the reporters give and take with that public figure, like written through the lens of here's how I covered David Stern. And here's that thing he said to me one time. What were your impressions sifting through all of those obits? I think that was my immediate takeaway, too, that everybody, you know, with a lot of I mean, when a lot of public figures pass on, there's there's often a lot of sameness in the lead. Right. I mean, people kind of get in and get out in the same. I mean, if it's a. You know, if even if someone ventures a take in their in their uh, or, you know, a real any kind of particular point of view um, in their obituaries, um, you know, it, 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 you, it, it's it usually tends in the same direction or at least, you know, with the, with the people who are, you know, going to play Arch. I mean, maybe the exact opposite direction. But again, a lot of sameness. There was a lot of sameness maybe in the overall, you know, Stern is a force of nature. And I think that was Woj who, who specifically had that in the headline kind of, you know, overall, um, you know, theses. But you're right. Every piece started differently. Every piece was 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 built around um, a specific interaction, a specific you know a, a very personal interaction or point of view. And and um, you know maybe you're right. I mean that's the that that in some ways is the most um, the clearest evidence of of Stern's lasting legacy. Yeah, I mean I think the it's the easiest way to win over journalists, right? Is to be available to journalists. And I said, as I said, mm-hmm. a second ago, make them feel important, make yeah. them feel like you're engaging with what they're saying, even if you're yelling at them, that you're paying yeah. attention and you're almost going over what they're saying with a fine tooth comb. A couple of examples, Ethan Strauss in the piece he wrote for the Athletics said that one time he used the word solipsistic uh, when interviewing Stern and quote, Stern expressed doubt that I was using the word correctly. <laughs> Basketball writer Ken Berger says that Stern always called him a project, like in the prospect sense of the word, as in, Berger, you've always been a project. (laughs) Mike Wise was interviewing him uh, recently and said, told Stern, be honest, you could be an asshole, right? David, in a voice laced with sarcasm, pointed to himself and said, moi? (laughs) (laughs) 
another time, Mike Wise calls uh, David Stern because he's written a piece in the New York Times that he knows Stern was upset by. Um, he gets Stern on the line. He says, I guess I must have written something that pissed you off again. David Voice Rising said, hey, Mike, fuck you. And then the line goes dead. <laughs> Henry Abbott over at True Hoop, who I think wrote one of the handful of obits that really took Stern's complexities, the bad parts about him, and actually explored them. Uh, he talked about asking Stern a tough question at a press conference, which Stern hated, kind of yells at him semi-comically, and then Stern invites Abbott to walk with him back to his office where he gives them all this inside dope on the labor negotiations that are going on. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, part of that accessibility is born out of the league that Stern was a commissioner of. The NBA needed all the attention it could get during that period. So, you know, you would expect that guy to be more available. Like, oh, you want to write about basketball? Even, even something negative? Here I am. Can I answer some questions for you? But, you know, nobody's going to write about experiences like that with about Roger Goodell. Ever. Or Bud Selig. They'll have some, but they won't have that level of intimacy Mm -hmm. that he was able to cultivate. Well, in a lot of ways, it's emblematic of the league, right? I mean, where it's where it's a personality-based league, and and so much of what we write is based on so much we write and read is based on you know relationships with players and agents, and and moreover, and sort of portraying them as human beings, you know, um, whether you know setting aside how honest and forthright those depictions are, um, you know, and and you know you've you've written a lot yourself about that sort of the reporter player relationship and how it's sort of unique in the basketball arena. Um, but yeah, I mean, first for Stern to sort of cult- cultivate that personality and those relationships, I think you said it, I mean, it speaks a lot to where the league, where he started with the league, right. And where the, the, the status of the league when, when he took over, um, but that he kept, you know, that he, that he sort of kept that reputation up, that he kept that personality up till the end, I think says a lot about him. Yeah, and it and I think in a way it takes the edge off the bullydom because as a commissioner he really could be a bully, and he could mm-hmm. often be a bully against the players. Um, I love this 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 headline ran ran in my Sunday New York Times on a Mark Stein essay about Stern. It said, "Compassionate dictator will be sorely missed." <laughs> now think about that. What other section of the Times? could the headline compassionate dictator will be sorely missed ever possibly run. Yeah. Not in the business section, not in, you know, actual, actual political world news dictator section. It -hmm. can only run with a sports commission. And, you know, I heard, I heard Bill mentioned Pete Rozelle. I mean, to me, that's the forget for a second, how great a commissioner he was or not. That's the that's the journalistic model of David Stern. Pete Roselle, you'd read, would sit back, grab a whiskey and, you know, kick around ideas with journalists. Right. Uh, You know, the whole idea was you have access to this world historical figure, at least within the realm of sports. That's David Stern to me Mm -hmm. as a media figure. You you, you have the chance to kick around stuff with this guy and feel like 
he's actually listening to you. Yeah. Some of the more adversarial positions that he took, and there were many, justifiably criticized at the time, and, and certainly, you know, after his, you know, after he stepped down and, and, and since he's passed on. And maybe it was his personality, and maybe it was the sort of relationships that's, that that allow us to have a sort of more circumspect or more overall positive view of the man. I mean, a lot of, some of the some of the decisions he made and some of the the his leadership tended towards a sort of like, you know, the sort of necessary wartime president vibe, right? I mean, he was like he was he he was he was a he was on a mission a lot of the time to sort of build the league, and and only he would know what was you know, what the right direction was, but. His tenure was much bit broader than that, and and what he and the way he he expanded the league and and turned it into a you know really a national sport in a lot of ways, um, is irrefutable. Um, also on the you know on the relationship with writers and the sort of open personality you know line, it, it it's it's interesting to look at his successor Adam Silver, and I was watching the two popes this weekend and and I, and, and was just try, was just imagining Stern and Adam Silver having these conversations, right? The Stern was just sort of like, "All right, all right, I've done all that I can do. Uh, it's time for a different look." But in a lot of you know, Adam Silver was certainly widely praised as a kind of antidote to to Stern. Yes, um, but in a lot of ways is very, very similar. And the longer that he's in office, is you know, is you know, certainly politically, he's a, he's a different person. Um, but it, the longer that he's, that he's, that he's in that, in that, you know, that seat, you know, there, there's, I feel like there's more and more similarities, but certainly in the, the accessibility or the, you know, at least the, the pretense of it, um, he learned a lot of that from, from David Stern. I feel in the profiles of Adam Silver that were running up to a couple of years ago, that David Stern had been reduced to like this couple of paragraphs where we would talk about the dress code and the other yeah, less savory things that he did, and Silver was kind of presented as a more perfected David Stern. Mm-hmm. And then Stern dies, and and dies sort of unexpectedly and early, I think. And you know, I think that in a way, a lot of that stuff got pushed to the side a little bit, or got mentioned, you know, kind of quickly, but not really investigated by people writing about him. Like, what mm-hmm. what did that mean? You know, I saw a lot of sentences like. Well, he was brilliant and he was a bully. Well, what does that mean? What was brilliant and what was bully? You know, mm-hmm. what was what was the bad stuff? So, yeah, I think that is another point that Simmons made. I thought on his pod that I thought was really good was that David Stern just knew everything about the modern history of the NBA. And basketball is kind of interesting because the fact that it grew and so a little later than the NFL and certainly than baseball meant that you could have access to almost all of modern basketball history through a guy like Stern that you couldn't with the NFL, right? Like we're not going to get Vince Lombardi on the phone. We're not going to get Johnny Unitas on the phone, but Stern could take you back and pretty much get, get you from, you know, the sixties all the way to the present. And he was this unbelievable historical resource for people. And was very interested in talking about the league's history. And again, if you're talking about, you know, what can you do to help journalists or make journalists feel good about you, being able to pop on the phone and say, sure, I'll talk to you about this thing that happened in 1983 or this thing that happened in 2001. That's huge, too. Yeah, totally agree. All right, let's talk NFL playoffs. 
David, you know I hate yes. the term storylines. Uh, here are the storylines for week one of the playoffs. You know, you can just write the story. You don't have to tell us what storyline is. Just write the story. But I have to admit that the action on Saturday and Sunday was lousy with storylines. First up, I want you to listen closely to Jim Nance because this call may represent the final moments of the New England Patriots dynasty. To end it, the two of them together. Yes. I mean, it's we'll never see this run again, Jim. Brady's pass is intercepted and returned for a touchdown by Logan Ryan, the former Patriots. Patriots lost that game to the Tennessee Titans 20-13. to uh, Tom Brady is a free agent not guaranteed to come back to the Patriots. Congrats to Boston Sports Radio on your next three months of content. Uh, my first thought when here, this may not only be the end of the Patriots dynasty, it may be the end of one of the great career-making or career-improving beats in the history of sports writing. Here are some names of people who careers benefited from them covering the Patriots. Michael Smith, formerly of ESPN. Ian Rappaport. Albert Breer, Michael Holly, Tom Curran, Field Yates, currently of ESPN. I could keep going. That beat or that city was an absolute goldmine for the people covering it. And it's always so funny to me about sports writers because it's very much the, the hand of fate. Like if the Jaguars had gone to nine Super Bowls over the last 20 years, that beat would have been great. And those people would have been would have become big figures and been promoted. But it was the Patriots. And so all of that was just this great engine and it selected, and again, let's say nothing about those people, but a lot of talented people. It selected those people for extra attention. Uh, it selected them. It made them more eligible to go get bigger gigs off that beat. And if that is coming to an end, like I said, we saw this, this will be the end of one of the great sports writer advancement uh, beats in the whole history of the game. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and I mean, we saw a, a smaller version or, you know, of, of a very similar thing with in, in the NBA with um, just every outlet relocating or uh, half their staff to the Bay area for the, you know, to follow the warriors during the past several seasons. And, mm -hmm. um, this is the, I, yeah, one, you know, I guess I'd be interested to see what a lot of those people are up to this season. <laughs> I mean, or what they're going to be doing during the playoffs too. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it's a, it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a plush position and, um, but unlike the warriors and certainly there were a lot of warriors writers who, made their name off of the Warriors, but, you know, ESPN and other outlets, the Athletic, were, like, moving writers to the Bay Area, right? I mean, they were they were putting their best writers on that beat, just like, you know, we've seen that in, in, with other teams, other great teams, too, but a lot of those, a lot of those Patriot writers, like you said, like, made their name covering the Patriots, and they got famous covering the Patriots, and, um, you know, this probably isn't the end of the Patriots dynasty, but... Um, probably not. It did feel it, it did it did feel like a like a moment for more circumspection than we've had in any of their previous losses, right? I mean, this was the um, this could be the end of a of an incredible run for one of the greatest football franchises ever, um, and at a time of incredible sports media instability, I'm sure there's a little bit more. <laughs> I'm sure that the 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 kind of um, 
sadness is more profound amongst the uh the patriots beat writing beat writing crew you know i mean it's it's a uh it it, it was a an incredible element of stability in a very unstable sort of sports writing world right now to that point though the rise and dynasty of the patriots was a great story you know what else is a great story to cover the fall of the patriots dynasty yeah tom brady going and signing with the tampa bay Bill Belichick finally getting fed up and going off to coach somewhere else. Um, you know, the the Patriots looking for their next quarterback. Like That's also a great story. Think of how many mm-hmm. stories there were out of the fall of the Cowboys dynasty in the 90s. Oh, yeah. Uh, we, I'm not sure the Patriots will ever match the Cowboys in just in terms of pure, you know, insanity. But that was itself not a great insani- story. Maybe, certainly not insanity, but, but in terms of, you know, the NFL being much more of a 12-month sport than it was at that point. I mean, yep. the most, the biggest stories, I mean, the story, the, the highest traffic stories uh, that are going to come out of the Patriots this season and next are going to be what happens between now and the start of next season. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, whether it's a just the complete dissolution of, of the Patriots as we know it, or, you know, even if it's just a new contract for Tom Brady, I mean, this is the story now that everybody is is eager to tell. And, you know, I guess all these writers just get like, you know, an extra month jump on this reporting. Over in the NFC during the Vikings-Saints playoff game, the story was the officiating, I guess their lack thereof, on this third and goal play in overtime. Yeah, Rudolph up here at the top. Cousins throws. Pass is caught for the win. That was Vikings tight end Kyle Rudolph with the game-winning uh, touchdown catch. What you don't see there is him pushing off the defensive back and apparently committing offensive pass interference. Every time I see one of these officiating controversies in the NFL, it's funny because I think we start to have this conversation about, gosh, the, the officials are so bad now, something I don't necessarily believe. Um, and, you know... This something has to be done because it's shaking our faith in the game. I can never quite get myself to that point because it seems like every time we have a crisis like this, it just becomes content immediately. Like the officials suck. Get a uh, Bill's mm-hmm. going to talk about it Sunday night. Stephen A is going to talk about it Monday morning. And there's this there's there is a point where something can could happen in the NFL that some non-negligible segment of customers could be like, you know what? I really don't like that. And that's going to, you know, decrease my interest in some, some level in the NFL. But to me, the much more likely scenario is it just becomes content that actually builds our interest in the NFL. Yeah. That we wanted something to talk about. I I mean, this is just my point of view, but it's weird that I found it odd. I mean, I found my own reaction odd that in, that in this situation, when, there actually is presumably a, a a correct and incorrect point of view on this question, right? As to whether or not that was pass interference, the argument seemed much more hollow than in than when they're than the arguments when the subject is much more abstract, right? Wait, is is Dak Prescott worth twenty five million dollars a year, thirty million dollars mm-hmm. a year, whatever? Like that's an argument that I'm interested in watching Stephen A. Smith yell about, right? I mean, but this just just seemed like. I mean, maybe it was just that maybe it's just the frustration that comes with NFL officiating, right? That like there it, there should be an answer and it comes down to this weird 
sort of, you know, fourth quarter call, is that a call that you actually make sort of, you know, splitting of hairs situation. But, um, and also it's like, it's either a yes or a no. Like, I don't need a paragraph. I mean, it's either this, tell me your, what's your point of view? Is that pass interference? Okay. Well, now I know. Good call, bad call. Can we move on? Yeah. Good call, bad call. But it's, it's, it's a, it's never, NFL officiating conversations are just, they're just never fun. And, (laughs) The more that the NFL tries to like, you know, update the rules, tweak the rules to make these things more definitive, the more it just becomes like it feels like we're being forced to have these conversations. You know, if it, it it's like it, we're like subtly changing the terms of the conversation, maybe with the hopes of just like obscuring of obscuring what's what the good call is. But I don't know. It just seems it's just it, it just feels frustrating. Maybe that maybe that's good for their ratings. Maybe that's a, maybe that's a good argument to some people. I just feel like just sort of. F- just frustrated by the whole thing we just i think we've subtly or maybe not so subtly changed what a game cast is for because isn't like wouldn't you say like one of the top two things your telecast of an nfl game can do is show you the angles on a disputed call i mean that that has that has gone from like eighth on the list of things we should do to like third on the list of things we should do during a game yeah that just feel again, it's content. It feels like part of the thing. We're gonna we're gonna have a controversial call in the end zone. Usually it's gonna involve whether a pass is complete or pass interference or something like that. We're gonna watch it 19 times. Uh Troy or Tony or Chris is going to give us their opinion. This ref in the booth, who we put in the booth basically for situations like this, is gonna give us our opinion, their opinion. And that's gonna be a thing. That that's part of the the rights of watching a game now is bitching about it's like it was always bitching about the officiating. I think it was Joe Tessitore once told me that people do three things during a game. They complain about the announcers, they complain about the offensive coordinator, and they complain about the officials. But now mm-hmm. that has been institutionalized. Like this is the okay, uh, let's go to Mike Pereira, and this is the part of the game where we're gonna bitch about the officiating. We we've 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 walled this off. That's a thing. And again, it just speaks to what I'm talking about in terms of how a crisis becomes content. Speaking of cheap content, how about the Dallas Cowboys coaching search? <laughs> Please. S- speaking of beats Please, that have made people rich, oh my gosh. First of all, I was reading Richard Deitch's um, media, Monday media column in The Athletic, and he noted that top five most watched games of the year in the NFL, the Cowboys were three of them. Cowboys were numbers one, two, and five on the list. Cowboys Bills on Thanksgiving Day got 32.6 million viewers, which is almost 3 million more viewers than any other NFL game. So then wow. the Cowboys have a coaching surge and I I didn't I didn't really watch anything. I was, you know, reading the local reporters there in Dallas, but every time I would sort of walk by a TV, I feel Stephen A was talking about the Cowboys coaching surge. Like if that's our reliable indicator for what is the number one story in America right now? And and by the way, not just in sports. Cowboys coaching search number one, Iran standoff number two. But that that is just like an absolute goldmine for everybody involved in the NFL to get in. Kev, Kevin Clark had this side hustle where he was just making jokes about Jason Garrett for a week. Like that was that was that was kind of a full time <laughs> job, you know. Funny jokes about the Cowboys not firing their old coach. Yeah. But I don't I don't guess I have much of a point here, but I'm amazed. The Cowboys have not have went to the playoffs three times in Jason Garrett's nine years as head coach. Three times. 
They didn't win anything. And they are still, thanks to a brand created back in the 70s and thanks to Jerry Jones's absolute overweening interest in remaining relevant, whatever the hell that mm-hmm. means at all times, they continue to be this gigantic story. Yeah, I mean, listen, their platform on television, I'm sure, I mean, is, is is unimpeachable, right? I mean, they're given all they're they're given these spots. I mean, they've they've earned them because of the ratings they get, but they're but they're they're presented as a you know, one of the most central teams in the league. Um and, you know, give Jerry Jones credit. I mean, he's built a respectable roster here. Um if they were if this were the, you know, Quincy Carter Cowboys, maybe we'd be give, giving it a little bit less attention right now. Maybe. Um, maybe. I mean, but it would still be getting a lot of attention because it's the it's the melodrama, right? It's it's like reading into what's going on behind the scenes. And, and I'm sure that wasn't deliberate, but the way this thing played out was just hilarious. I mean, like there were days and days of of non-action, right? I mean, they they didn't fire Jason Garrett even after the word leaked out that they probably would. After his last game, he was out <laughs> in the field throwing balls and people were were were, you know, tweeting, you know, tweeting photos of it and and telling the story as if this were like, you know, the great war general out there just like taking a la- last look at the battlefield before he wheels off into obsolescence or whatever. But the but the and then the fact that it never that it took so many days to resolve um the, the only updates we got were these like carefully worded Ed Werder tweets that were clearly fed by some source. Um, it, it was just all, it, it was just begging for attention for almost accidentally. Not that it needed any extra help. Um, and don't forget but, they were interviewing people for Jason Garrett's job before they had fired Jason Garrett. And I don't even think they fired him. They just said they were going to let us contract. I mean, the Jason Garrett, the Giants today, I think, had to ask permission to interview Jason Garrett for yeah. their offense coordinator job. Before they had confirmed that he the, was not the, coming back. Yeah. But they were interviewing yeah. <laughs> people for his job. And you had this whole, again, so Cowboys, right, that Mike McCarthy, the new coach, was staying over at Jerry Jones's house. Also, yeah. the, just the tweet of maybe the millennium was Ian Rappaport, who I mentioned a minute ago as a product of the uh, the Patriots Boston machine. He tweeted, the Cowboys have officially fired coach Jason Garrett and Garrett has allowed them to do so, source confirms. Right. Jason Garrett has allowed himself to be fired mm-hmm. as the coach of the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, that's the most Cowboys thing ever. It is, and it also speaks to like some arcane aspect of the contract or brilliantly negotiated aspect of the contract that for whatever reason, we're not really privy to yet. I mean, there's obviously, there's obviously something, I mean, <laughs> I can I, only there, be fired with permission. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I just don't understand, but, but it was, I mean, there, there's, there, are, there's a, an aspect of this that we don't know. And if the answer is solely, you know, Jerry Jones's personal affection for Jason Garrett, because there was also the conversation about finding another role for him in the front office, which either could be a symptom of great personal affection or, or you know, trying to or Jerry Jones trying to evade some sort of contractual stipulation that would have you know that, that that kept him from firing him right after the last game. I don't know. There, I mean, the, the intrigue is is incredible for this, and and uh, it's it's it just. I mean, the the institution that the Cowboys have built. Um, is certainly a multimedia one. I mean, we're all very interested in this team no matter what happens. But um, for whatever reason, this just seemed like uh, j- just a 
extreme moment, especially for a coach that no one would have been no one would have been shocked if he had been fired any of the past several seasons, no. right? I mean, and, and and now his contract is basically up. So I mean, it's I don't know the, the whole thing was just just sort of hilarious. Also, this is neither here nor there, but uh, get out your Google image search and and look at Mike McCarthy and then look at Stephen Jones. They look a whole lot alike. <laughs> I'm not saying that's why Jerry Jones made this decision. Mike McCarthy looks like Stephen Jones, you know, after like several several too many trips to the buffet. They they those guys look very very similar. So uh, when you see him on the sideline, just imagine what Jerry Jones is thinking in his head. You've just created a whole new subgenre of Cowboys content. <laughs> is Jerry Jones hiring his own son after he already hired his own son? Yeah, exactly. Unbelievable. Can I ask you a totally just ridiculous Cowboys question, Brian? Yeah. Do you think if Jerry Jones instituted, like, put him, made himself head? I know we've been talking about this. We've talked. People have made this joke a million times over the years. If Jerry Jones made himself head coach of the Dallas Cowboys, mm-hmm. would he be better than Freddie Kitchens? Whew. that's a great question. Like, like, because that's that's basically the Jerry Jones cutoff point, right? Right. It's not Bill Belichick. It's Freddie Kitchens. There's no way he'd be good. But like, would he be would he be better than like the worst NFL head coach? So I think Jerry Jerry would cast himself as what he calls the walk around coach, right? If he were the head coach, where mm-hmm. essentially you walk around and pat players on the butt and yeah. let your coordinators do the work. So I think mm-hmm. like he there's a pretty good chance Jerry would hire a better offensive coordinator than Freddie Kitchens. And the problem would to me would be Jerry like trying to like manage timeouts and stuff like that. Like that scare that would scare the hell out of me. Yeah. I always wanted Jerry to really coach the team. I just thought that was the logical place this was going to wind up. Speaking of content. <laughs> the moment for him was the Barry Switzer moment, right? Because you had a like you had a colossus yeah. of a team. Mm-hmm. And if you if you were gonna just I mean it's anybody can win a Super Bowl, quote unquote, with this team. It was basically like what we thought Greg Popovich was doing when he made himself coach of the Spurs. Although Greg Popovich turned out to be just the, one of the greatest coaches of all time, <laughs> but like to just to kind of come out of the office and be just like, no, no, I can take it from here, guys. Don't yeah, worry. I got like, this. that. Would I that would have been amazing? No, no. We have, you have your new coach right here. All right, time for David Shoemaker guesses a strain pun headline. Here, David gives okay. us a weary sigh. Okay. Last week's headline from a medical journal on surfing injuries was "When the wave breaks you." As usual, our listeners are funnier than <laughs> we are. Kelsey says it should have been Awabunga, dude. Uh, Zach Brooks and your dad have had versions of MR riding, MR riding the wave. MR riding the wave. Logan Duke says it should have been hang tendon. Hang tendon. This week's headline comes from Brian Serkia. It's from The Economist. David, have you followed the story of Carlos Ghosn? Oh, yeah. This is the former head of Nissan Renault who was awaiting prosecution in Japan and then fled to Lebanon. Everyone wondering how the hell did he get out of Japan, this high-profile guy about to go on trial. Ghosn claimed he was fleeing injustice. But think of Carlos Ghosn, David, getting the hell out of Dodge. What was The Economist's strained pun headline? Oh, man. Um, Carlos Ghosn, Nissan. Uh, oh my God, there's so much. There's so much stuff here. Um, like I would. God, um, Japan. 
Mm. I mean, I'm 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 sticking on like Nissan models. Like, is there like is there is there like a rogue joke in here? Uh, or is, I, is there? You're actually going too inside here. Just go with the guy's name. How do you say his last name? Gon. It's spelled G H O S N. Gone is it like gone with the wind? Gone, gone, but not forgotten. What, <laughs> yeah. is the, what, what are we doing? We would have accepted both of those. Uh, the Economist headline was actually gone, going, gone. <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't going, wouldn't going, going, gone be better? Well, uh, maybe yes, not. exactly. No, I think that's right. Going, going, gone, but <laughs> gone, going, gone. Thanks to Brian Circuit for sending that in. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Research by Chris Almeida. Production magic by Jim Cunningham. We're back Friday with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. You think when he was in his prime, they had, there was anyone used the headline, The Ultima Warrior? <laughs> <laughs>some questions for you tell me your what's your point of view i was trained fully struck back and perhaps in a disproportionate manner such legal notice is not required but is given nevertheless exclamation point it's either a yes or a no like i don't need a paragraph i mean it's either this you could be an asshole right wow david in a voice laced with sarcasm pointed to himself and said i think that's right yeah damn it you know i, I the bastard yelled at me but he still returned my calls the next time it doesn't mean it was a good decision so what, David, should we make of junkies and feces and dirty needles? Sex crazed pandas. They won't have that level of intimacy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why not? Um. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> and speaking of cheap content, what was the bad stuff? Um, I'm now going to demagogue. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> kind of an interesting marriage right like this is the formal thing we need to do but i don't want to be too dismissive well okay we'll be are we spending too much time on this i mean are we are we are we parsing something that really doesn't matter at the end of the day yeah